0: Welcome to another edition of Mr. Nice Guy. I'm Ben Slowe. And joining me this afternoon, um, I've got uh, a comrade of mine in the PSL, Party for Socialism and Liberation. Uh, he's one of the founding members of the Milwaukee branch about four years ago. Um, he's also involved in the Milwaukee Autonomous Tenants Union. Um, he um, is somebody I look up to very much. Um, he's a history buff. Um, he uh, is helping organize uh, the union at Colectivo Coffee right now here in Milwaukee. And uh, I'm excited to talk to him about what he does, why he does it, the revolution, and radicalization. Thanks for joining me, Bobby Penner. Rock and roll, Ben. I'm so happy. I'm finally
1: on Mr. Nice Guy. This is like this is a landmark type of event in your life to be on the Mr. Nice Guy podcast. Because I remember watching this before I even like knew you um, as well as I do now. And I'm like, dang, hopefully I can be on that podcast someday. And so that day is finally here and it's super exciting.
0: Yes. Cheers, brother. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I remember we were, we were going to do this earlier this year. Um, and I was going to have you on to talk about, you know, I knew you were like a big socialist, so I assumed we were going to talk about, you know, socialism. Mm-hmm. But little would I know, um, I become radicalized this year and join your um, your little socialist <laughs> movement. And uh, now we are comrades. So, yes, we are. So that gives us that much more to discuss. So, oh, yeah. Bobby, we'll start uh, with uh, how your day was. What did you do? Be-
1: oh (laughs) shit um so my day was extremely busy today so i spent all day um basically down at the milwaukee county circuit court um with a tenant that we uh the milwaukee autonomous tenants union represents um her name's tamika um and essentially i'll just give you a little bit of rundown of of kind of some of the things that the milwaukee autonomous tenants union is, is dealing with right now what tenants in the city of milwaukee are dealing with Tamika um, had received an eviction notice back in July from her landlord, who is uh, some guy that lives in Florida. Um, and she, they, they had a court date and the court decided that um, she needed to pay by September 7th, um, pay her back rent and for the month of September. So she had a few thousand dollars to pay, but she was able to pay it. Um, as well as receive some assistance from the Wisconsin Rental Assistance Program, um, which goes through the, the SDC here in Milwaukee. Um, and so she was able to pay her rent all the way through January. However, yesterday, the sheriff, the Milwaukee County Sheriff shows up at her house and with an eviction notice and says, hey, you and all of your stuff need to be out today. And she had received no notice. She has paid up on her rent. And it turns out that the landlord, uh, uh, on purposely did not file the correct paperwork with the circuit court satisfying the eviction and taking the eviction off her record. And so what happened was he didn't do that. He's trying to take her money and then kick her out of the house. And so I spent all day uh, down at the court with Tamika, um, trying to figure out, you know, we tried to reopen the case first, but it turns out the case is still open because now he's suing her for damages. um which is it, it's it's kind of strange because there aren't any damages that he could even assess because he lives in florida so there's no damages for him to assess um and so we couldn't reopen the case the case is still open we tried to get a new court date that didn't work and so we were able to finally get in contact with a very nice lawyer um down at um, Milwaukee legal aid society who is going to take over the case um but you can understand though how for a tenant somebody who's not familiar with the ins and outs of, of, of tenant law, um, rental law in Milwaukee would have no idea what to do. And that's kind of the place that Tamika and, and hundreds of other tenants are in, in Milwaukee right now with all these evictions happening is tenants don't know their rights. Um, it's just not something that they're taught about. It's not something that's easy information to find um, if you don't know where to look. So my day has been crazy. I just rolled back into my house Scarfed down a sandwich. I've got a, a, a very fresh cup of dark Sumatra coffee here, um, and and so I'm ready to roll for the rest of the day.
0: Wow, well, um, <laughs> what a um, what a fruitful day uh, it sounds. Um, I uh, have been in bed most of the day listening to um, emo music. And
2: <laughs> <Yes>.
0: <laughs> oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. It's been. Um, yeah, you know, it's kind of been anthemic to uh, the year, um, mm-hmm. personally. But, yeah, uh, well, there's, there's just so much to unpack there, Bobby. Um, uh, I, so let, let's begin with the fact that, you know, this sort of, like, the, 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 the surface level, like, front-facing fact of the matter is that this woman was, like, you know, she, she paid
2: Mm-hmm.
0: paid up in advance yeah. and to have her housing her housing provided um, mind you in the middle of a, a pandemic a public mm-hmm. health crisis as well as a recession to have so not only was she like on paper like you know properly uh, accounted for mm-hmm. and uh, her basic necessities which by the way are being capitalized on mm-hmm. by a landlord across the country Modified, yeah yes uh uh decided to take away her basic necessities mm-hmm. um and uh you know violate what should be basic human rights and uh, for what you know and it's just like that's and go you know kind of continuing to um go deeper into what you just said there yeah landlords have to give i know they legally have to give a notice of like a like when they're um when they're like visiting or when they're coming by to you know infiltrate a tenant's space and uh, they also need to give you they can't just kick you out in 24 hours like that's completely illegal isn't it
1: right yeah exactly um so, and also to add what you said, there's also a federal eviction moratorium in place as well. And um, for Tamika, we filed a a declaration um, of, you know, adherence essentially to that that um, that federal eviction moratorium order, saying that, you know, Tamika has done everything in her power to pay. She has paid. You should not be evicting her right now. and, and yet the sheriff went through with the eviction anyways, despite that declaration. Um, So it it really just goes to show that, first of all, you know, a lot of this stuff that's coming from the federal level that's supposed to be, oh yeah, this is supposed to help people, this will relieve people of the very severe situations that they're facing right now. But it also goes to show that, you know, landowners, the land owning class, the people that commodify housing for a profit, the people that own productive property and commodify workers' labor um, to create profit, they go hand in hand with the state security forces, with the sheriff, with the police, uh, with the courts, um, and all of that. So, so there is a collaboration here between the landowning class, the, the capitalist class, the producer class. Uh, well, not the producer class, but the, the, the class that uh, um, um, produces profit, or not not produces profit, but that that kind of earns profit. Facilitates Uh, it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. There's no good way to put it because they really don't do anything. Landlords don't do anything, right? They don't do anything. They just own. It's not a job. It's It's not a job. Right? They're they're gatekeepers to housing. They don't provide housing. They're gatekeepers to housing, and so. This class, this this owning class, uh, is very much goes hand in hand very much with the the state security forces and, and the political class, um, and we you can see that very clearly in in the city of Milwaukee how fractured the the housing um, the housing market is um, and and how difficult it is for people to be able to stay in their homes right now. Last week uh, things dropped down to like 72 evictions. This week there's 94 more evictions. The week before that. And for several weeks before that, there were we were you know dealing with about 150 evictions every single week, um, and so the moratorium, which was supposed to slow things down, did very little, from what I can tell. And there's still the system is still over uh, oversaturated with people trying to get rental assistance money, trying to get legal help, trying to get mediation, trying to get Section 8 housing vouchers. You know, the, the system trying to get their unemployment money. So many of these tenants that we talk to have not even received their unemployment money. They haven't even gotten a, a cent of it yet. Uh, and so there's just, the system is so broken and so oversaturated that all these supposed social safety nets that, that should be available to people aren't working. And now we're seeing people, families, Tabika and her, and her young son thrown out onto the street with all their belongings. Um, and there's just dozens of cases like it. I mean, today was not an exceptional case, um, aside from the fact that she has paid her rent, um, but it's just we've seen this over and over again: people thrown out on
0: on the side of the road.
2: Yeah,
0: and um, yeah, it's uh, kind of hard to articulate just how morally bankrupt this, um, you know, this playing on the loopholes of system, of the system that these landlords are. Are doing right now to, you know, to increase their own profits. You know, at the expense of potential, you know, life-threatening circumstances to their tenants. Um, mm-hmm. It's parasitic. Mm-hmm. It's, it's entirely parasitic. Um, yeah. Um, and we're gonna we're gonna talk more about MATU definitely.
1: Cool, cool, um, cool.
0: Because. You know, yeah, we're
1: ju- we're still in the part about how our days were.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, we're still um, we're we're barely on square one here. Um, but it's it's we will spend uh, a period at length uh, discussing this issue because it's entirely overlooked by the mainstream media, um, mm-hmm. even just in and you know. It not helped at all or I should say it's further um, exas- exasperated by Milwaukee's political and cultural and social segregation. Mm-hmm. So many of Milwaukee's own um, uh, citizens don't know that this is happening if they don't live in an area where this is, where these evictions are concentrated and which I understand is heavily on the north side right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to talk about that later. Um, but Bobby, uh, what we talk about on Mr. Nice guy, we examine love and fear, passion and creativity. And, uh, you know, we were talking a little bit before we started recording, but yeah. Um, I, so, um, this year has been, you know, incredibly transformative, like for many folks, um, that got like heavily radicalized and, you know, I, I when I first met you, like I knew you were like a big socialist. We, I believe, the first time I knew who you were was at the Cream Vellum EP release show last year at High Dive. Yeah, far out. That was a great show. <laughs> that was, dude. I shout out to Cream Vellum. Oh yeah, Cream Vellum. That's Elise, one of my
1: favorite bands. They're so
0: good. Yeah, yeah Elise. Shout actually, out to them. Yeah, Elise. Actually, uh, I just bought a shirt from them. Elise came by and dropped it off the other day. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Cream Velm's great. Um, but then I, the first time we actually spoke, though, was so just, you know, by chance. I saw you after the uh, the room showing uh, at the Oriental where yes. Tommy Wiseau was uh, He was there! in person, yeah. Um, and I, I saw you and Erica, um, your partner, uh, my mm. mentor. Shout out to Erica. And, uh, I was just kind of like, oh, hey, y'all. What's going on? (laughs) Like, what a show, huh? You know, so we can actually, that's a fun way to start. Um, What was your introduction to The Room, Bobby? (laughs) Um, I first watched The
1: Room with my uh, former roommate, um, Jacob Alba, um, or or Lama, um, as he goes by, Um, and it just became such a it became, it just became such a, 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 you know, how it goes where we just like quoted it all the time and we watched it several, probably, probably over a dozen times together.
0: Um, icon.
1: yeah, it's an iconic film. And so my introduction to it was through, through my friend. Um, and then when we found out that it was going to be at the Oriental, we were like, oh, we have to go. And then we found out that Tommy Wiseau was going to be there and we're like, oh my gosh, we have to go. And so it was really a, um, it was a big deal. That was an iconic night for sure, and oh, I re- sure I remember is. every aspect of that night yeah, in detail. I remember seeing Tommy. I remember what he talked about when he was up on stage. All that nonsense. The three
0: belts he was wearing.
1: Yes, and all <laughs> the all the watches and wristbands he had on. He's a like, madman, uh, but I still bought his underwear. So oh, nice! I yeah. bought him um,
0: I uh picked up this Bad Boy. Oh, nice. Uh, I have one of those too. Yep. Yeah. Yes, it's, it's autographed. Um it was the cheapest thing that you could buy. Um, I I remember I was so broke at the time and I really only had money to buy the cheapest thing just cuz I, you know, you can't walk out of there like without having like shaken his hand and like met him like it's literally just you know, it's such a like once in a lifetime opportunity. It was um, truly beautiful. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> Hi Mark. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. I um my I my uh roommate Brock Dahl at the time, um he was the one who introduced me to the room. I remember it was like at the time everyone kinda got on the wave when the disaster artist came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you see the Disaster Artist? Yes. Yeah, and I thought it was pretty good. Um, Ooh, mm-hmm. I, but you know, obviously, you have to watch the room before you, you know, watch right. the Disaster Artist. And um, yeah, my life was never the same after that. Yeah, yeah. It truly is a. It's an inspiring
1: film. It's an iconic film. There's so many. You know, it's it's a memory that you make at some point in your life. Being a 20 something year old in the United States. You just watch it. It's something that you do as a weird person living, weird young
0: person living in the United States, is you watch the room.
2: Yeah,
1: Simple Dude. as
0: that. Dude, yeah, seriously. Uh, uh, I dressed up as Tommy for Halloween the, fi- oh, nice. the following year. Yes. Yeah. Um, trimmed a wig down to size and <laughs> tried to, I kind of tried to method act the whole night, you know. <laughs> then I, I, I knew, also knew you worked at Coletivo. Because mm-hmm. um, so I would always see you, like, I lived right behind Colectivo, and I'd always, like, walk past and see one loading trucks and shit. Yep, yep, um, that's, yeah. Production, production worker, warehouse
1: worker at Colectivo for a couple of years. Hmm. Um, I guess I technically still work there. Uh, I'm laid off right now. I've been laid off since March. Um, and we—I'm I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit later too. But the reason I'm still laid off is because of the union organizing um, that I've been doing there. Um, they're very, very reluctant to bring back union organizers back to work because they're—they're—they're they're, they're afraid of of having to accept a union.
0: Yeah, they're that giving, mean—they're they're giving unionizing a platform by doing that,
1: essentially. Right. Yeah, I know they—they are kind of shooting themselves. In their own foot, especially with the, the strong anti union letters that they've sent out to the employees. There's there's been two so far, um, and ju- they're just like they're filled with with lies and you know half truths and, and just kind of slander about unions. Um, it's it's some typical shit. Um, so I mean it, I'm not surprised because the owners are trying to corporatize Colectivo. They're trying to take it from that little, that kind of little hometown coffee shop to be a, a regional powerhouse in in coffee. Um, and then I think, this is just my thought, I don't know if it's true, but then I think they're going to sell it for a bunch of money. Uh, after they kind of expand to their zenith, to their, their fullest capacity um, with cafes in Chicago and Madison and maybe up in the Twin Cities and over in Iowa, you know. We'll see, but that's what I think that they're doing, and they're gonna have a much harder time selling the company for as much money if the workers are unionized. But I don't know that
0: for sure. I'm just theorizing. Yeah, it's amazing how much like they'll manipulate. They're taking such drastic measures to like manipulate their employees mm-hmm. in order to like downplay um, workers. <coughs> rights and, and uh, means of uh, having a voice in, in the workplace. And uh, I mean, I feel like that's another thing that really um, got uh, exposed this year by a, a number of, um, of um, local businesses, local chains, um, even on a bigger scale, like other corporations. I'm sure mm-hmm. you saw what happened with Roundies earlier mm-hmm. this year as well um yeah so yeah so once again yeah we'll get into that but yeah, bobby, yeah, yeah. I, I i need to like actually like kind of crack you open here though but so we're so we'll start with bobby where'd you grow up
1: uh i grew up in madison wisconsin um lived there um for first 18 years of my life um went to to robert la Follette, robert m la Follette high school um and, and after I graduated high school, I, I came here to go to college. So I grew up in Madison, which is a really, really kind of hippy-dippy little town. Um, it's not so little anymore, I guess, because um, there's a couple big corporate entities that moved in there. Um, but it was, a, it was a nice place to grow up. It can get small real quick, especially when you're a high schooler and it's like midnight and you're like just driving around trying to find something to do. And then you like go and with your friends and just hang out in the 24 hour Woodmans. And (laughs) you know, it's, it, it can get real small. And so all my life I kind of thought, Oh yeah, I want to like stay in Madison. I want to go to college in Madison. I want to start a family in Madison. But by the time I was 18, I was like, I'm ready to, to,
0: to see other things. So that's why I moved to Milwaukee. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I grew up in the Chicago suburbs and it was kind of, similarly like you get caught up with your friends on the weekends just sort of like not uh yeah you're kind of just struggling to um keep yourselves busy Mm -hmm. um yeah i hometown life is definitely boring you know when you're an angsty kid yeah um so uh so what did you want to be when you grew up like when you were a kid
1: um it's hard to like remember what, I, I guess I, mostly I didn't really want to grow up cause I was having such a good time um, being a kid. And, and even in high school, I didn't really have a, a very strong idea of what I wanted to do. Um, you know, I, I guess my, my passion for what came after school like started very late. So when I was a kid, I don't, I, I can't even, I was just like, yo, I'm not trying to grow up, I guess. Yeah. I, um, you know, I, me and my friends, we were, we were the really weird kids in school. Oh, yeah. um, and so we would, like, we would, like, make movies for, like, YouTube movies and, like, mock commercials and all sorts of goofy stuff. So we, we were able to, like, fill our time pretty well um, and do a lot of really silly shit um, and only get in a little bit of trouble. Um, but I guess what, when I really, like, kind of started to figure out what I wanted to be was during like the, the Act 10 protests, um, 2011, 2012, um, when, when stuff really started to go down um, with Scott Walker and uh, his, his bill, Act 10, that limited um, union's ability to collectively bargain. Um, and my parents are union workers. My mom works for the teacher or worked for the teachers' union. She's retired now. my dad, was a public librarian uh, and a union member with, uh, with ASME for years and years and years. Um, so that really like hit close to home. Um, and when I started to kind of get involved in those protests and organizing within my high school um, to, to do walkouts and to support our teachers and to you know, make sure that we were showing up in force as students um, to, to protest against this bill, um, that's kind of when I was like, okay, I wanna do something in politics. Um, And and so that's what I originally started out with at at UW-Milwaukee was political science. Um, I didn't really know what political science meant, um, but I was like, I want to be in politics. And so originally I was a very strong Democrat um, until about 2012. And what kind of changed that for me was what happened with the Act 10 protests, because Originally, it started out uh, with, with calls for a general strike for for, the work, for union workers all over the state of Wisconsin to, to go on strike in protest. And that was gaining momentum. Um, it was gaining momentum because of the radical uh, groups within unions like the AFL-CIO, AFSCME, IBEW, but also because of the leadership of the, the IWW, the International Workers of the World, or the, industri- the Industrial Workers of the World, Um, who were playing a major role in those protests. So things were looking like they're heading towards a general strike. But then as we see a lot, and as I've learned that we see a lot, is the Democratic Party kind of swooped in and usurped that movement. They said, no, 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 you don't wanna do a general strike. What we should do is we should recall Walker. And that's how that big recall Walker campaign started. That wasn't the idea of the workers that were out there protesting, that was the idea of the Democratic Party. And so they say, "Let's we got to end these protests now, end the protests, and we have to focus on gathering signatures to recall Walker and doing this campaign.
0: That's and, another classic example of targeting the symptom rather than the root. Mm-hmm, exactly, exactly. And
1: so they they decided that Tom Barrett would be, the mayor of Milwaukee who had just in fact lost to Scott Walker in the 2010 gubernatorial election, they decided that he was the best candidate to run again against Scott Walker and he lost. And I was like, well, f- shit, like these fucking Democrats, like it-, it didn't make any sense to me. And I was, I was upset, I was very upset at the time about how things went. And, and so going into college that next fall after all of this had happened, um, I was feeling a little bit more like, okay, like, the, you know, what, what's going on here with these parties and how these elections work, it doesn't make any sense. And so I was looking for something, something new. And so I I did a lot of political science, I got a, a degree in history, uh, an undergraduate degree in history as well. Um, but, I mean, I guess I still don't really know what I want to do when I grow <laughs> up. I, <laughs> yeah, all right. I wanna teach. I wanna teach and I wanna I do wanna be like a researcher and a professor um at some point, but I don't know when that point is yeah. gonna be. Bobby, um, we're
0: still we're still kids, we just have more hair. Yeah. Oh my gosh.
1: Yeah. I'm twenty six years old and I've just bounced around from job to job. You know, Colectivo for a while, obviously. I worked in IT, I was a janitor, um, I, I worked in a
0: cafeteria, in Wait, you know, I've worked in you worked at the Sandberg Cafe, didn't you? Yeah, I worked at the Sandberg Cafe. I, I worked there, too, for a semester. What? Hated it. Hated it. Which se- <laughs> wait, what semester did you work there? Uh, spring of
1: 2015. Oh, wait, did we work together? No, we didn't. That was right after I left. Okay. That was right after I left. Wait. I worked there until
0: fall of 2014, something like that. But yeah, man, I, I ran the grills and the fryers, um, man, that was, that's a dirty job. Yeah. It's a really no, dirty job. I didn't even feel like I, like, I felt so useless. That was probably one of the most useless I've felt in a workplace, um, for absolute, like the shittiest legal pay,
1: Impossible.
2: Yeah.
1: Oh yeah. The pay was so bad. I started out minimum wage, 7.25. Yeah. And when I got promoted to a supervisor, I was making 9 dollars an hour. Yeah. <laughs> and I was doing so much work for 9 dollars an hour. I was doing more work than I would do for 9 dollars an hour ever again. I'm never doing that
0: much work for 9 dollars an hour ever again. Oh god, no. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So,
0: so Yeah, I um, cause that's how you know, um, Scott, right? Yes. Shout out to Scott Enders, my good friend. Scott, Scott
1: Enders. Shout out to Scott Enders. He out there somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I,
0: I'm interested to know where he's at too, but he's <laughs> one of the, one of the most jolly dudes I know. I, I love mm. Scott very much.
1: No, he's jovial. He is. He's very, very
0: positive. Yeah. Yeah. He listens to really good music too.
1: Yes, he does.
0: Yeah. So you're... Man, so it's interesting to hear that like you had a pretty you had quite a head start with um your road to radicalization mm-hmm. the beginning in high school because I mean I think that, you know, that's just something most teenagers are very not uh not especially conscious of how, you know, um political and economic um institutions have direct impact on like what your parents do or what schools you go to or mm-hmm. you know like what kind of jobs you have and you know you just you don't pay much mind to that but i'm yeah i mean that's that's like good for you that like you got kind of like um involved in that like early and mm-hmm. it, and it inspired you to uh just kind of like go in a generalized direction of like, I want to understand the system and uh, how to, you know, and learn like what needs to change. It sounds
1: yeah, like. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and I, I, got a, I got a great start in that, not only because of, you know, what happened around the Act 10 protests and the recall campaign and all of that, um, but because I had some excellent radical professors um, at uwM right away when I started out, i want to give a shout out to Professor Philip Minahan uh, who worked at uwm uh, he doesn't he doesn't anymore I think he's at cal, cal State Fullerton now um, but I, I credit him with you know introducing me to some of the major uh, marxist writings of you know of of that early 20th century and and late nineteenth century period when when so much of Marxist thought was developing, so you know he had us reading Lenin. We read the Communist Manifesto. We read Engels, you know. And, and as a uh, as an, a politically frustrated undergraduate, those things were extremely formative uh, uh, to me. Um, so I want to yeah I want to give a shout out to to Philip Minahan for sure. Oh,
0: no,
1: because no. um, he was he was crucial crucial. Awesome.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah, man. Um, I can honestly kind of retrospectively relate to you in a lot of ways, though. My parents were um, small business owners. They owned a garden center. Oh. Yes. Uh, sunny Sunny Crest Greenhouses. <laughs> that's, um, that's cute. That's pretty cute. Oh, very honestly. adorable.
1: Adorable. Whimsical. Yeah.
0: yeah. And, um, and you know, I, I grew up in a, like, so I grew up in Fosmore Illinois, which is on the, in the south suburbs of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, it's a pretty wealthy area and my family was always like one of the more low income families in, in the, the neighborhood. And, um, when the, I remember like the first time I ever really like kind of was forced to pay attention to it was the late 2000s recession, which pretty much just, you know, it just like threw a big wrench in my parents' business had never recovered. You know, they suffered heavily um, at the, at the hands of competition from corporate uh, garden centers. And when they built a mire down the street from our house, it was curtains. Mm. Um, mm. Uh, yeah. But yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, you know, my parents were, uh, are lifelong Democrats. Um, so, like, I honestly kind of, like, grew up with the basic understanding of, like, you know, like, Obama good, Bush bad, you know? Right, right.
1: yeah, exact, exactly, yeah. I mean, same same here. Parents, lifelong
2: Democrats. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, totally. Still are. Yeah, same here, and I love them to death, although oh, yeah. they don't quite understand what I'm, what I've gotten myself into this year. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's the same. I mean, yeah, Sonia and Todd, I love you
1: guys. Um, and you always try to listen to me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You don't, you don't really get it, but you try, you know, very understanding people.
0: Yeah. So do John and Nancy. Um, John is at least very well read. Like he's read a lot of, um, you know, like, Socialist and communist rhetoric himself, so he's at least very well educated. He's also a really big history buff too. He love he's he knows like everything about the Civil War. Like, you'll if you ever meet him, you'll, I like him. I probably like him. Yo, you would love John. You'll have to chop it up. Yeah. Time. Oh yeah, we will. We will. Good. Good. So, so um, yeah. I I kind of entered college like, I remember like, you know, I was still. I I had a pretty long time kind of navigating like what my own political beliefs were. Like I, you know, I kind of found myself in sort of like the circle of like Joe Rogan lovers, you know, (laughs) like, and I, I kind of like would always listen to, you know, I would try to hear the both sides Mm. approach and kind of Mm -hmm. stuff. And I don't know. I, I feel like I never really identified, a whole lot with the Democratic Party either because it just felt like you know my parents it felt like you know they were doing all the right things for a very long time but Democratic legislation just didn't always you know really help them a whole lot in their times of like fiscal or um, you know business or properly related Mm -hmm. need like they like they, they, did, they did struggle for a long time. So like, I for a long time, you know, I was kind of just like, man, I'm just going to like make a bunch of friends, make friends that have different beliefs and kind of like hear what they all have to say. And then,
2: mm.
0: you know, I always, I mean, I always lean more liberal, but I think that like, kind of, you mentioned radical professors mm. and that alone is one of the most like one of the most impactful resources you can have Mm -hmm. as a young person, kind of like trying to figure out like what you believe in and what you, what direction you want to go and what, Mm -hmm. what belief systems you subscribe to. And that's exactly what happened to me, but it took, it was, it wasn't until my final semester, I had a Marxist professor, Mm -hmm. uh, Professor Eric Lohman, um, Who's in the JAMS department. Um, he taught political economy of the media, which is my senior seminar. And uh, yeah, we were basically kind of taught, yeah, capitalism runs the media. The media conglomerates are all in intense competition with one another. You know, Disney's becoming a monopoly mm-hmm. and uh, good luck finding a job now.
2: And, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and,
0: yeah, like that was it. And at that point, like I was so frantic to try to find a job after school. After learning all of this, um, you know, just very uh, disillusioning uh, um, education about you know hardline news. It's a t- it's the radicalization, like the having a radical professor and learning that kind of rhetoric. You know, it's it's like it's exciting to to like open a new doorway to, but it's also you know being a leftist is also really depressing because you realize how you you're confronted with the futility of mm-hmm. you know our conquest to enter a market and succeed in that market you know
1: yeah you know no exactly and and it, it it's it's uh like getting radicalized isn't something that happens all at once it's, it's gradual steps toward it and and so like you know when when I did come out of high school with all of that those experiences I was like yeah I'm a I'm a I'm a socialist I'm a communist but I I didn't really have a good idea of what that meant and and so gradually I started to to you know learn more about how bankrupt um, capitalism is and how bankrupt this this whole bourgeoisie system is so I um, for my political science degree um, I got a, a research grant to to study elections um, and so I, I spent. Two semesters um, studying elections, and I produced uh, and published a couple of, of election databases with different kinds yeah. of uh, different kinds of data, regression data, um, uh, and, and analysis that you know really demonstrated that you know there there's there's so many different kinds of elections that can happen under capitalism, and all none of them seem to really represent anybody, um, and and especially here in the United States, like these elections, like, even after I I'd identified as a socialist and a communist, I still put a lot into a lot of faith into our electoral institutions here. Um, and after, you know, while I was doing that research, I, I pretty much found out that, oh, shit, some our elections are some of the most undemocratic. Um, because, you know, ballot access is very exclusive. It's very hard to get your candidate on the ballot if you're not sponsored by one of the two major parties. Um, you know, having a first past the post system where it's a winner take all, oh, you get the most votes, you win, rather than something like proportional representation or ranked choice voting or runoff voting or tiered voting or direct democracy or any of those things like that. Um, oh, my nose, um, it's, it, it, you know, the fact that there are other ways to be more representative in elections under capitalism, and that we don't have any of those things here in the United States is, is, you know, concerning. And it, it, you, so you realize eventually, okay, so, you know, our economic system is, is, is corrupt, but, you know, maybe if we vote for these Democrats, things will get better. And then you learn more about the elections and more about the parties and you're like, okay, so voting for Democrats isn't going to get anything better and we can't vote for anybody else because it's so hard to have any other party besides the Democrats or Republicans win an election, yeah. or so, even get on the ballot.
0: And that means Democrats could run literally the most establishment, the most corporate candidate, um, you know, every single time. And because of party loyalty, right? Like, they believe that, and the vote blue no matter who. Mm-hmm. Um, mentality you know they can just keep getting away with you know their oh, yeah. choices <laughs> and they plan
1: to because that's been their whole strategy since 1964 when it was uh Lyndon B Johnson versus Barry Goldwater that's where vote blue no matter who originated that's where this idea of well Lyndon Johnson's not great but Barry Goldwater is a lot worse he's a bigot he's a racist he's a lot worse like so it's, so even though Lyndon Johnson's not great, you have to vote for him because you don't want Barry, Watt, Barry Goldwater. And that's been the Democratic strategy since yeah. that time is saying, okay, well, you know, our candidate, not great. We know you don't really like him, but you got to go ahead and vote for him because he's not the other guy. And if we embrace that, and if we continue to vote blue, no matter who... Um, under the pretext that, oh, well, this is the most important election in, in the history of the country and we have to win this one. So, you, you know, your protest vote is really misplaced or, or whatever, it, it doesn't allow the party, the Democratic Party or the politicians to be held accountable. That's how we're supposed to hold them accountable is with our vote, supposedly. This is all based on the rhetoric of, you know, people that believe in democracy in the United States. Um, that's how we're supposed to do it. But we can't do it. We can't hold them accountable because we have to vote for them no matter who it is every time. And so it's, it's this contradiction that is insurmountable and there's nothing that we can do to change it because the Democrats have found a way, this vote blue no matter who thing, to get people to continue to vote for them without having to give anything back in return. And so yeah. I want to go and, and go back to, to something that Malcolm X said back in 1964 with this, imp, you know, this election mm-hmm. between Goldwater and Johnson going on is he says, why would we commit to any candidate before they've given us any promises, before they've made any, you know, propositions to us? And he's talking about the African American community. But he says, you would be stupid to, to, to commit your vote to a candidate before he's ever done anything for you, before he said he's gonna do anything for you, before he's proposed anything, right? He said, we'd be stupid to do that. So maybe Barry Goldwater is terrible, but if if the Democrats think that we might potentially withhold our votes or vote for the opposition candidate, then we can bargain with them. But with this vote blue no matter who mentality, there's no bargaining going on. The Democrats don't think that we'll withhold our vote. They're pretty confident that we won't. Um, but withholding your vote, voting for a third party candidate, not voting, um, spoiling your ballot, it's a profound political statement. I'm not encouraging people not to vote, but I'm encouraging people to vote who they think that they, you know, who they would want to be their right. president. Yeah. And if the Democrats think that you withhold, will withhold your vote, and if the voters will withhold their vote in mass, then they have to do something for us. So... It, this is an argument I get in on the internet all the time. Oh, so.
0: I, I'm aware. I've, uh, but I've watched it happen. Um, I mean, it's happening a lot right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we uh, as the PSL um, have worked really hard to get Gloria Lariva on the ballot in, uh, mm. in other states, and uh, and um, I think I actually just saw you um, getting a, a, a and you had an extended. Uh, Response, uh, I believe it was on Comrade Leo's post. Mm, mm -hmm. Yep, that was me. Yep, yeah,
1: yeah. That's why it's so fresh in my head. Yeah, Um. right.
0: Yeah, (laughs) yeah. And uh, and and you know, this whole "vote blue no matter who" rhetoric also, I mean, importantly, as it directly impacts us as, you know, an alternative party, it prevents any traction for, you know, for third parties to have any any qualifying platform that could possibly compete with the bipartisan system. And it's, mm-hmm. it's just so fucking ugly because, yeah. you know, I, I mean, you live in river West too. So you probably get this, you know, you walk pat, you walk through the neighborhood and you just see all these vote, vote, vote signs
2: mm-hmm. everywhere.
0: And uh, I know what it's like, you know, I admire folks valid, like um, valuing the voting process. I do, but I can't help but still like um, recognize that I know exactly like what that vote sign is insinuating. Yeah. You know, and I'm sure you do too. Oh yeah. It's very,
1: the insinuation is very clear. It's not, it's not an open invitation to vote for whoever you want. That's not what it is. It is a not so um, covert. It's not, so, not so inconspicuous. Right. Vote for Biden's Sign. Yes. You might as well just put a Biden sign out. Because if I'm going, to, if I tell somebody that I'm going to vote third party, that I'm going to vote for Gloria LaRiva and Sunil Freeman, who will be write-in candidates for November third, look them up, LaRiva2020.org. Um, they will be write-in candidates here. If I tell you know some Democrat that that's who I'm going to vote for, they're going to get really bad at me you know, they're gonna, they're gonna get pissed off and say, well, you're just a vote for them is a vote for Trump. And it's like, no, a vote for them is a vote for them. Like, because people that vote for third parties, and this is is, a lot of literature came out about third party voting after the 2000 election, where Democrats basically blamed Ralph Nader um, for uh, George W. Bush's electoral victory, even though there's a bunch of other things that you could blame on, uh, you know, on the Democrats themselves for Al Gore's really mild conservative candidacy. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I mean,
0: yeah. Horrible campaigns. Horrible
1: campaigns. And so there's all this rhetoric and even for 2016, even though it's complete bullshit that, Oh, Jill Stein cost Hillary Clinton the election. It's a bunch of crap. Um, But when you survey third party candidates and a lot of research came out on this after 2000, progressive candidate or people that voted for more progressive candidates, Green Party, Socialist Parties, they say, well, if those parties weren't on the ballot, I probably wouldn't vote. However, people that vote for conservative third parties, they say, well, if my conservative third party wasn't on the ballot, I would almost certainly vote Republican. So, I mean you know if you take third parties off the ballot, you have to take all third parties off the ballot. You can't just say, oh, we're just gonna take the Green Party and the Party for Socialism and Liberation and the Socialist Workers Party off the ballot and leave the Libertarians and the Constitutionalists and the Prohibitionists and all those conservative parties. We're gonna leave them on the ballot. You can't do that it's a double standard. You have to, if you're gonna take third parties off the ballot you have to take all of them off the ballot. And if you take the Libertarians Mm -hmm. and the Constitutionalists off the ballot, they're all gonna go vote for the Republicans. And if you redistribute the votes in the 2016 election from all the conservative parties and all the progressive parties to the Democrats or the Republicans, you get an overwhelming Trump victory. Like 4 million people voted for Gary Johnson and almost certainly those people all would have gone and voted for Trump if Gary Johnson wasn't an option. So the idea that third parties cost the Democrats elections, it's bullshit. Third parties have done more for Democrats, like conservative third parties have done more for Democrats than, you know, have ever hurt them. Like, like, let's look to 1992 and 1996 elections. Ross Perot in 1992 took 19% of the vote of people that almost certainly would have voted for George Bush. And in in 96, he took 9% of the vote of people that almost certainly would have voted for Bob Dole and helped Bill Clinton win both those elections. So I don't want to hear any Democrats coming around me saying that third parties hurt the Democrats. They don't. It's, it, there's no statistical um, basis for making that claim. So it's I'm not going to be shamed. Yeah, it's a
0: it's a myth uh, rooted in oversimplification and a misunderstanding of the electoral process, it sounds like.
1: Yeah. Um, people don't look at the data. They don't look at the data. They don't because they'd rather take a, this very oversimplified view of it.
0: Yeah. I mean, and that's kind of, uh, I think that's also heavily um, played into by headline culture. You know, people read headlines rather than actual, like, you know, hard, um, uncorporatized news. So, all this being said, Bobby, I'd love to let's take it back to when you. Got involved in the Party for Socialism and Liberation because your involve, involvement was obviously instrumental in there being a PSL branch hmm. in Milwaukee. So let's hear about that. Yeah. So by the time I got done with my under, undergraduate degree
1: in 2016 over at UWM, um, I had I was I, I was I was pretty confident that I was a socialist um, and 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 a Marxist Leninist, and I wanted to start doing some organizing work. Um, because kind of going from being kind of like a, oh, I'm a sit at home armchair communist, I'm well read and I have all this good rhetoric, but I don't actually do anything. I wanted to move on from that. So I graduated with degrees in history um, and political science um, and I was like, all right, time to go out in the real world and see what what's up. And so I, I, did, I started to do some research on different socialist parties. Um, in Milwaukee at that time, there were only a couple of different socialist groups um, uh, Socialist Equality Party had a chapter here. Uh, Freedom Road Socialist Organization, um, and uh, the Workers' World Party. But none of those groups really appealed to me for for various reasons. And you know, th- th- there there are comrades. They're still they're still Marxists. They're still you know working in the same direction that we are. I have a lot of great comrades in in the Freedom Road Socialist Organization. But I, I kind of was more interested in PSL. I, I did my research on PSL, I read their program, I read you know a lot of the different articles uh, uh, that were on their website and they really strongly appealed to me because it, it seemed that they used a, a, a variety of methods to to build this revolutionary organization. And I was very interested and so I got in contact uh, with, um, with the branch in Chicago um, and I did, uh, I did the candidacy class series. So when you join PSL, you, uh, you first become a candidate and you go through a series of classes to kind of teach you about the party line, to teach you about the history of communist struggle and communist thought worldwide about dialectical materialism and just the whole basis for not only building a, a party of why we're building a party, but for how to conduct uh, a revolution. Uh, which is the ultimate goal of the PSL and which that's what drew me to it the most is they were very clear that our ultimate goal is revolution. We're not, you know, we're not a reformist party. We're not a reformist organization. We are about revolution. Um, And so (laughs) when it started out, when I I finished candidacy, it was just me out here. Um, And that was tough because I really didn't have a lot of experience in organizing. I mean, I had organized in high school some for act 10, it's
0: the world on your shoulders. Yeah, you're running I just a whole yeah. a one-man party
1: here. Yeah, and so I mean, I did re- we we I did receive a lot of valuable support from the comrades down in Chicago. Um, you know, Patrick McWilliams is somebody who really helped me along a lot up here. Um, and you know, eventually we got a few more members and and the party grew a little bit. Um Erica joined my partner Um, and, and that really kind of made it more of a, you know, there was, at least I had somebody to work with, right? And somebody that I was really close to, to, to work with on this. And, you know, we kind of went through ebbs and flows. There, There was a lot of times where we weren't really doing anything of substance. We were just kind of, you know, we would meet and we would talk about stuff, but we wouldn't really do anything. Um, and it was difficult. We had people leave. You know, we had people say, "All right, you know what? This is you know, you're not doing anything. So, I'm not, I don't want to be part of this. Or, you know, I don't have time for this, or, and stuff like that." And it was, it was, you know, it was difficult because I'm. I don't consider myself a really like big time, good organizer because me myself as a person, I'm not that organized. Everything that's going up here, it's not that organized, and so I don't really feel comfortable leading a, a branch. And so I was in leadership for a while and I'm not anymore uh, with, with the branch, which is, I'm, I'm thankful for that um, because it really allows me to take on more specific roles rather than general leadership. Um, but we really saw the flowering of the branch um, after uh, a couple of comrades joined, uh, Mitch uh, Mitch, and, and Maddie both joined the party. And that's when we really saw a big change in how, in the direction of the party and how active the party was, because we we gained some members, some really you know passionate members, and then we lost some dead weight uh, that was in the party as well. Um, that really kind of freed us up to really, you know, start to do some serious organizing. And I would consider what we're doing, you know, what we've been doing for like this past year to be really solid. Um, solid organizing and we've grown so much and so just to kind of like see how things have gone from you know me putting up like stapling posters up around river west without kind of any purpose like that was the first thing i ever did with psl is I, i i printed off a bunch of psl posters and i just stapled them up all over river west and i was like okay let's see what happens and nothing happened i'm like all right well then I guess I have to do something different. So it's just come, it's come so far from that point. Um, and like, I, I, am, I am definitely proud. I'm proud of the, the work I did, but I'm more so proud of, of the people that have done, you know, so much more to take it beyond what it was when I was kind of leading the organization to, to what it is now. Um, and I'm just really proud of that. I'm really proud of the work that, that people have put into this and, and all the new people that are, are passionate and are contributing as candidate members in in all sorts of different ways. So it's just like it's super, it's super cool to see.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember I posted a Facebook status that was like, it was a day after the statewide election this past April. Like I was just so I had been so appalled by just the the mishandling of you know, the the polling places, and, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, just the blatant disregard for public health, and it felt so bleak after that happened that, like, I felt like I was just, you know, I really needed an answer, and I needed one quickly mm-hmm. that was like, what can we do? Because this ain't it. Yeah. And you know, I'm glad that you commented and were like the revolutions now. <laughs> <And> <laughs> did I say that? Oh my gosh. You said something like that. <laughs> something like that. but but you you included the link to like apply to join. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, without hesitation I filled it out and uh, a week later Maddie called me and uh, we had a conversation. They informed me about what the party's like what it stands for and like implications of capitalism and imperialism and electoralism and fighting for a worker state. And honestly, I almost at first I'm not going to lie. I almost thought it was too radical for me, but, and, but, you know, I think that the PSL has certainly taught, like, it quickly teaches you like that it makes you very comfortable with just not holding back. Yes. You know, yeah, and, it, and thinking so, thinking so big picture about mm-hmm. how these these systems affect not only us on personal levels, uh, affect our communities, affect us locally, um, but also the implications of how what we fight for affects worldwide affairs as well. And, right unpacking the systemic uh, demonization and delegitimization of, you know, socialist republics in the past by, you know, um, US uh, nationalist propaganda. Mm -hmm. And that alone was like, you know, know the meme where, you know, the meme where it's like the brain (laughs) And it just, inc- it, it just progressively gets, like, bigger and bigger, and then it just explodes. <laughs> yeah, I like that's, that one, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, like, what joining the PSL was for me. Because take North Korea, the DPRK. Yeah. We were fed, we were spoon-fed that the mm. DPRK is this militant, evil, fet- fascistic, um, just absolute, like... You know the bane of what we consider to be like, you know, freedom and mm-hmm. safety and security. Like we we're fed so much of that. By oh yeah, from a that young we have age. to be af- that we
1: have to be afraid of North Korea. Yeah, that's yeah, the, that's the thing that 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 is so um, you know contrary to to reality is that you know there's plenty of of real criticisms yeah. that can be made of North Korea the DPRK, you know, and any other socialist state, there's plenty of material criticisms that can be made of any socialist state. But propagandizing of fear of this tiny country that's just trying to defend itself, yeah. you know, that's, that's totally contrary to, to reality. Right. Um, and yeah, I mean, that isn't like, you know, we, we b- bombed that country to hell in the early 1950s. We, the United States destroyed every structure over three stories. In, in the DPRK during the Korean War. Killed 8 million of its citizens. Um, and, and what do we expect? You know, what, literally what would we expect after that? Would we expect this country to be nice to us after that kind of brutality, after that kind of you know, unfettered violence? Would we expect them to wanna have normal relations? Would we expect them not to be afraid of us using nuclear weapons against them like we threatened to do during the Korean War? No. They, there is a mentality that exists in North Korea that they have to defend themselves against us and they, and it's correct it is a correct mentality. They should I mean they, they, they are concerned about their security and and they probably should be because there are still tens of thousands of US troops stationed right at the border in, in the, the, the. US occupied state of South Korea um, which is a, an illegitimate you know state um you know there is concern and so it is very real and so yeah i mean to your point it's exactly true that we're so propagandized around things like you know the dprk cuba um the soviet union china venezuela is one of the more recent ones dude it's all bull that people are supposed to kind of just scoff at this government that is is literally doing everything it can to make sure that people are fed provided with the medicine that they need, provided with housing, with all the necessities of life, well-being blockaded, embargoed, um, and having literally billions of dollars worth of, of gold and oil profits stolen from it. That's what is the reality with the embargo and the sanctions against Venezuela. And why sanction Venezuela? Because the, 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 the opposition, the, the right-wing liberal Uh, opposition in venezuela didn't win the election in 2016 they lost the election and because they lost the election because they you know they fought among themselves because they're they're idiots um sanctions so this is all to say that like like i said before there's plenty of valid criticisms of the socialist system in venezuela plenty of them But blaming them for the major blaming the socialist government, blaming Maduro, blaming Chavez, blaming um, you know the people's councils and the cooperatives of of uh, the socialist party there is not valid. That's not a valid point to make because those are the groups that are responsible for keeping venezuela afloat through all this if it wasn't for the strength of the socialist movement if it wasn't for the strength of chavez and maduro um, and the assistance coming from china and cuba literally the
0: crisis would be so much worse you know needless to say this year was a year of it's been a year of intense radicalization from uh, um you know many you know just in many um you know, dimensions of social justice and political consciousness. But, yeah, like, I'm – it was one of the best decisions I made this year. Um, The first video that Jody Dean presented, which um, highlights, the you know, what specifically the term comrade refers to, Mm -hmm. that is – it is a um, – somebody who – is fighting for a shared revolution,
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, shared revolutionary vision um, that surpasses all other forms of relationship or proximity or otherwise um, affiliation to between individuals. Like comrade is basically like having it's basically like a having a family of revolutionaries. Mm-hmm. So well, and. Learning the distinctions between comrade and ally, I think is like that alone, like, you know, just so instilled, like why kind of like, you know, an underlying um, reason why all of us are doing the work that we're doing, you know, that we are rooted in, you know, combating the intersectional struggles of all marginalized people mm-hmm. and uh, we don't put ourselves in classes like yes our everyone's oppressions are unique
2: mm-hmm.
0: and uh, all equally as valid but like you know allyship sort of like implies that you have to be on the outside of the revolution um,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and, uh, whereas comrade means no we're all actively a part of it mm-hmm. and uh, I think if that was, that was such a good summation of like why, of, you know, what we all joined for and why we are continuing to like, um, gain traction right now. Mm -hmm. And and, and yeah, like I just want to say comrade Jody Dean just like, yeah, put such a, an amazing and inspiring rhetoric to, you know, our mission.
1: Yeah, no, check, check out her books uh, for all y'all, y'all listening. Uh, Comrade by Jody Dean. Also her book, The Communist Horizon. Uh, those are both available through Verso Books. Those are excellent books. Um, but yeah, I just kind of want to echo what you said um, and, and dig into it a little bit more that, you know, we're not just this loose association of people. Um, and that's kind of what allyship is is, 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 is a loose association of people with some of the same kinds of ideas about things but without wh- lacking direction that's anything more than you know some phrases some general ideas um some some non-resolute actions things that don't that are are kind of intended to bring change but that don't really have any follow up to them that's what allyship is and i think we've seen during these uprisings here uh, in Milwaukee and across the country that that there are a lot of ally group, ally groups that are based on allyship groups that are based on these loose affiliations of you. Oh, you know, whoever whoever shows up to march. We're just going to march. We're going to march for 200 days. We're just going to march for 200 days. And that's what our goal is going to be without kind of any ideology without you know a program, without specific or recognizable demands or any idea of how to reach those demands. That's what we've seen a lot of, is we've seen these loose associations, these allyship-based groups. And the Party for Socialism and Liberation is, is very different than that. And, and because we're based on a very specific ideology, we have a party program, we have a very rich history of revolution that we draw on, and that we analyze using the, the, the science of, of dialectical materialism, mm-hmm. um, which, is, which is a process of, you know, evaluating social conflict, uh, of evaluating the conflict between the working class and the capitalist class, within the totality of all things, the totality of our history of our of human knowledge about sociology, human interaction, archaeology, science, you know, the hard sciences using the totality of all human knowledge to examine class conflict and to try and steer it in a way, this conflict in a way that will lead to the revolutionary takeover of the working class and being having that having that ideological basis, that very solid ideological basis, and a lot of literature um, and historical experience, material experience that we can draw on, really sets us apart from allyship groups that kind of have these non-descript, non-resolute ideologies. Some, you know, because, you know, in these big tent organizations, you have people that are liberal, maybe people that are a little bit more conservative, people that are saying fuck the police, people that say no, not all police are bad, or going you, back to, embrace the police. Going back
0: to the whole constant, um, the constant um, cajoling people to vote, vote, vote. Right. Right. And then you have democratic
1: infiltration that, oh, you know, what what we need to do, you know, we need to stop marching, we need to stop protesting, what we need to do is go and vote for Joe Biden. Um, You know, when when you don't have an ideology, you don't have a program, you're going, your energy, all that energy that you're devoting to protest, that you're devoting to change, that you, you know, that is kind of a budding revolutionary energy gets funneled back into the system, gets funneled back into the Democratic Party, the Republican Party voting as an institution in the capitalist society. And so it's so important that we separate ourselves from that as as comrades, as party members in the PSL, because what we're advocating for is revolution with no apologies, is working class revolution and, and assisting, being there to assist the working class and help lead the working class in a revolutionary struggle when that time comes around. When people say, you know what, I cannot go on any longer under this system. There is no way that I can live under this system anymore. We need to do something. And that's what the PSL and other revolutionary groups are there for. That's what we exist for, is to to assist the working class in a revolutionary upsurge. And we have to continually do that by growing, by educating, by holding public events, by being on the ground when the working class needs our help. Um, by joining organizations like the Milwaukee Autonomous Tenants Union, uh, like the Get the Let Out Coalition, um, to push for reforms. Um, even though we don't think that reformism is the way to go, you know, we don't think we can reform capitalism out into socialism. We know it's that at the revolution- end goal. It's not right. the end
0: goal. It's a checkpoint.
1: Right. And we can use those reforms to build trust within the working class, to show them that the system doesn't work, and to show them that, you know, if we are all working together in this, in this very symbiotic, um, powerful, unified relationship, that we can win victories. Um, and so all of this is, is to say, and, and it's, it's very important to organize in a revolutionary party like PSL. Um, and there are other parties out there, maybe PSL doesn't fit your ideology. You know, that's okay, there's other groups out there, but joining an organization that has a resolute ideology and that is calling for revolution, That's important Um, and and whether you're an anarchist or a social democrat or a Marxist-Leninist or a Maoist or a Trotskyist, we're all in this on the same side, fighting for the abolition of the capitalist state. We wanna destroy the capitalist state and you know what we do after that there's that's you know there's some debate about that but we need to be working together in order to smash the capitalist state and i you know i stand firmly with my anarchist comrades with my social democratic comrades um maoist and trotsky's comrades as long as we're calling for revolution then let's work together and do it
2: yeah
0: um 100 i echo all of that and you know i'm just i'm really uh I'm delighted to see our new candidacy class has grown.
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, It's got
0: influx of new members. Oh yeah. Um, Yeah. And I'm, uh, you know, I think that, um, you know, it, it becomes just something that, you know, revolution and um, participating in the PSL, like it quickly doesn't become like something that like, oh, you feel like you have to do it because it's the right thing to do. It becomes, no, I like, I want to be out Mm -hmm. like fighting, you know, being out in the streets and uh, holding teach-ins and um, helping organize marches and connecting people with other organizers and, you know, helping educate our own community about um, like um, about personal experiences folks have had with, you know, racist police, or mm-hmm. um, you know, violence like uh, violence perpetuated by um, oppressive rhetoric or oppressive s- systems and that kind of stuff. And you know, I think that, and that's ultimately what, like, such a fundamental part of the education process is hearing folks' stories that have have these lived experiences. I mean, like you said, you are you're with the MATU. And you're actively working in court with tenants that are at risk of eviction during mm. the public health crisis with, like, little to no, um, you know, uh, fiscal uh, wiggle room to, to mm-hmm. show for it. And,
2: yeah,
0: like, we're going to be fighting some sort of revolution for the rest of our lives. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that, like, you know folks like you and I have like really we've accepted that and come to terms with that. But that's also like sort of what we define our like subjective realities and goals and our roles in this world is to make the world a better place for all people and dismantling war machines Mm -hmm. and, and you know, fighting for the equities that you never knew like were owed to others
2: mm-hmm.
0: and uh, yeah i mean i'm i'm very ready to take this on for the rest of my life mm-hmm. and as a matter of fact like um devote my um life to helping be a part of this revolution because mm-hmm. We have no, like, there's no other option. It's not an option. The revolution's not a fucking option. It's not an option.
2: It's not a fucking option. Like,
0: it's. We're at the brink of environmental catastrophe. We're at the brink of capitalism and imperialism literally, like, um, uh, bringing about a heat death Mm -hmm. to the world. And uh, we have... like, we're out of fucking time. <laughs> we are. As a matter of fact, we've, we
1: have been out of time. We've been out of time for quite a while. Yeah. Right, and it's just, and I can't emphasize enough, just like you said here, the, the urgency of all of this. The urgency that, you know, we, that people, that working class people start to realize that we have to do something now. That we have to act, that we have to come together And we have to act because the state, the political parties, the, the, you know, the owners of businesses, the corporate entities are not going to fix this because they're, they're capital embodied. The only thing that they really care about is accumulation. And this is what Marx talks about in his, his famous critique, das Kapital of the capitalist system is that once people, individuals, you know, we can think of these famous billionaires like Bezos and um, you know, Bill Gates and, and all of them, Warren Buffett, you know, whoever, um, what's that one fucker's name? Elon Musk, um, all those, all these very, very rich people are just, they're bound to capital. They are human, v- human aspects of the circulation of capital and what they live for, what they have come to live for. Maybe they were human at one point, but what they have come to live for is to prov- provide a, a, a body for the circulation of capital to flow through. They aren't human anymore. They are, they are capital embodied. And, and they are bleeding this earth dry. They are bleeding the working class dry. And they will not stop doing that until every single person on this earth is dead. It yeah. will literally not stop until there's nothing left for them to extract, that there is no capital left for them to circulate because they don't think in the long term. They think in the short term, they think about their immediate profits down in the next year or two. And that's all. Yeah.
0: Until every last person is milked of their labor use. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, until, until they stand victorious on a, a pile of, you know, emaciated bodies and skeletons with, you know, fires burning all around them in this hellish, you know, post-human landscape until that eventuality kind of comes about, you know, it, they're, they're, they're not going to stop. They're going to do everything in their power to continue to accumulate and accumulate and accumulate. It's not even about having money to spend on things anymore. There's no, there's no amount of commodities in the world that those billions of dollars could buy. It's not about being able to, you know, have spending power to buy things or improve things. It's just about accumulation. And we have to understand that the political system, that the courts, that the police, um, that all the entities of the state exist to allow those people to continue to circulate capitalism and to continue to kill the earth and to continue to invade countries for their resources and kill tens of thousands, millions of innocent people like we have done in the Middle East um, just in the past decade, two decades here. people have to understand that that's all built into the system, that there isn't any reforming this because it's it's not a broken system. It's working exactly as it's supposed to be working. All of this that's happening is not a product of the system being corrupt or broken. It's working how they've designed it to work. Capitalism is doing what it does and we need to dismantle it brick by brick um, for there to be any kind of semblance of human you know, uh, unity with the environment, human unity with itself, you know, the creation of sustainable living, uh, uh, you know, providing people with the necessities of life, a home, a job, clean water, food, health care, those types of things, we can do all of that. We have the technology, we have the resources. The only yeah. thing that stands in the way is this system of capitalism.
0: Yeah, overpopulation is an eco-fascist myth.
1: Yeah, it's a myth. It's not real. It's not real. Um, we if we can design ways to better you know plan our communities to better you know use our energy to to generate energy um you know the earth the earth has a much larger carrying capacity but if we continue to live like this the way that we're doing right now right it's it's not gonna work so eco-fascists out there do you do your research like and, and shut the fuck up like we don't need to to limit population growth we need to destroy capitalism so you know get off your pedestal um extinction rebellion like stop all your eco-fascist shit like come come join a revolutionary party and let's destroy capitalism
0: right yeah instead of like you know just the constant virtue signaling on the basis of a of a baseless claim Mm -hmm. that the world is you know overflowing with human beings because that's not true. I mean, we have enough resources, the fiscal means, the, you know, the all of that is is it's been here the whole. I don't, I'm sure you saw that um that meme of like the astronaut pointing the gun at the person. Mm-hmm. Like it's been always here. has been. Yeah, it always has been. You know, like that's that's a that I feel like that meme coming out yeah. of this year.
1: No, literally, couldn't have no. came at a better time. And it's like oh, it should say the astronaut that's looking at Earth should say, wait, we have the resources and knowledge to fix all of our problems. To feed and every like,
0: human being on this planet.
1: And the guy with the gun says, Always have. Yeah, yeah. Always yeah. have been. Always yeah. have. We've always yeah. had all those resources. It's always been there. And we can look like capitalism has not <laughs> existed for the whole Extent of humanity. Capital. The history of capitalism is really a very short history. Um, uh, if you if you you know read uh, Emmanuel Wallerstein, he identifies very clearly in in the 16th century where we can say yes, capitalism started here, and that's really where the unsustainability, the practices of unsustainability in humanity start. That's where the commons are taken over are expropriated by landlords. Um, that's where um, you know, the enclosures happen. That's where people who are living communally and living you know uh, uh, living subsistence existences or or are very producing very small amounts of surplus, that's where all of that stops and people be people's labor becomes a commodity. It's yeah. in the first half of the 16th century and so the idea that capitalism is human nature or it's the best system that we can you know possibly come up with it's
2: it's
0: not historically it breeds innovation no the greatest innovations of humankind came thousands of years before capitalism was a thing the wheel agriculture you know Mm -hmm. like building materials all that came without capitalism Mm -hmm. and uh, the myth that capitalism perpetuates innovation is also a manipulation that, you know, forces that ga- aims to for folks to subscribe to the institution. Yes. So so Bobby, you have you yeah, you, you mentioned get the let out. You did mm-hmm. a lot of work with that. I'd love to hear more about that kind of work because that's another issue um, I think is worthy of a platform.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah, for sure. Um, and I mean, this kind of goes in with with the idea that you know people deserve the necessities of life. They deserve to drink clean water. Water is a necessity, clean water, even better. Um, and, and so the work that I do with the Get the Let Out Coalition. So I'm a, I'm a professionally trained historian. I have a master's degree in history from UWM. Um, and I studied, um, I studied agriculture and environmentalism and revolutions um uh through the lens uh, of of a revolution that took place in, in West Africa in Burkina Faso um in the 1980s but so i'm you know i'm am an archival historian and that's kind of the contri- contribution that i've made one of the main contributions to the get the Lead out coalition is researching and compiling a historical account of lead poisoning in Milwaukee um and so for people that may, might be kind of unfamiliar with how this all works Um, In Milwaukee, there are about 75,000 homes that have a lead pipe, a lead service line that brings water from the main in the center of the street to the house. So the water has to get into the house somehow. And it comes through what in 75,000 homes in Milwaukee is a lead pipe. And so lead is a, if you don't know, it's a very toxic substance. If you're drinking lead, In water, if you're eating lead paint chips, if you're inhaling lead dust, um, you you become lead poisoned. And especially for pregnant women, children, um, old people, this can have severe, severe um, consequences. Um, It leads to neurological impairment, low birth weight, bad birth outcomes such as miscarriage, um, liver and kidney dysfunction, um, and, and other things related to that. Um, you know lead essentially it it acts like it's a uh, a calcium um, when your body absorbs it and so instead of your body getting rid of lead flushing it out it never leaves your body and it gets into your bones and it gets into your um, it kind of makes its way into your genetic makeup because it it just it becomes part of you it replaces calcium um, in your bones and it's it's very hazardous and so the work that I've been doing, and I wanna give a shout out to Robert Miranda um, and Jay Giles, who I've worked with uh, in the Get the Lead Out Coalition for uh, quite a while. Um, these, these guys are, are incredible activists. Robert Miranda has been a, a lead and water expert in Milwaukee for, for over a decade now. Um, but the work that I did specifically was to figure out, okay, how did these lead pipes get here? why did they get put here under what circumstances, you know, um, and whose responsibility is it to replace them? Because that's, that's a whole thing now is, you know, it's been recognized after all of this activist work that the get the let out coalition has done that. Okay. The city says, okay, these lead pipes, they need to go, you know, we, we shouldn't have these in the ground anymore. People shouldn't be drinking from lead pipes. They have to go. Um, but, responsibility is now the issue. So going back to 1000 BC, um, it, it was known by um, engineers in, in the Roman Empire, uh, Vitruvius notably, who said that, you know, you shouldn't drink water from lead pipes. It makes you act and feel weird. You feel sick. He said, drinking water from lead pipes is unclean. If you want clean water, don't drink it from lead pipes. And we have circumstances in history like that, you know, where people say, yeah, lead pipes, that's bad. All the way up through the, you know, through the present. And so this isn't something that's obscure knowledge. It's not something that's just kind of like, oh, this was a mistake. They didn't know that lead pipes are bad. No, when the city of Milwaukee in 1872 mandated that lead pipes had to be used to connect to the water system they knew very well that lead was, to- was a toxic material and that lead water running or water running through lead pipes was dangerous and they did it anyways. And the reason that they did that in here in Milwaukee specifically um, was because the mayor at that time, a guy named Harrison Luddington, had a vested interest in lead. So he was on the board of the Wisconsin State Lead Mining Company, um, his brother or maybe it was his his cousin. His cousin, James Luddington, was the owner of the Wisconsin White Lead Manufacturing, um, the Milwaukee White Lead Manufacturing Company. Um, Sorry, I'm getting my things mixed up here. Um, And Luddington was also the owner of uh, a major transportation network that had actually participated in the transportation of lead across the state of Wisconsin from the lead mines Uh, since uh, 1832. So this is a guy that was was profiting already greatly from the extraction of lead from the ground. And so what he did by mandating in 1872 that lead pipes have to be installed, that the pipes that are going to bring you water have to be lead, is he increased the profitability of his companies and of his cousin's company, of his transportation companies, of all the real estate that he owned in the city he increased his profitability. And so the reason that we have all of these lead pipes, and the mandate lasted from 1872 until 1950 is because of this one greedy bastard who was a businessman. He got into political office and he's, you know he saw his opportunity to profit off of it. And so he got extremely rich from this deal where he you know, he, the city paid him to have this lead manufactured, or have this lead transported to Milwaukee. It paid his cousin to have the lead manufactured into pipes. uh, And then it paid him again when, uh, well, it paid off for him when uh, the city installed lead pipes in his properties. So that is all to say that there's a clear, from my perspective as a historian, there's a clear responsibility on the part of the city of Milwaukee to mend the, you know, the 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 mistake not even the mistakes but to to kind of make up for what the predecessor its political predecessors did and there's a total lack of acknowledgement of this by the city um I was even told by Karen Detmer who is the water superintendent the superintendent of the Milwaukee water works uh you know we met one time at a uh conference about lead poisoning and she said you know robert i think your history is really interesting but it's not really important it's not really it doesn't have anything to do with what's going on now we should really focus on the here and now and not think about all this no she literally said this she literally said this to me she said the history is not important we need to focus on on the now and i said you know what if all those lead pipes were gone then the history wouldn't be important, but in reality, there are pipes from 1872 and before that people are still drinking water out of that are falling apart, that are flaking and leaching lead into the water and poisoning children. And you're as telling me you that this isn't important as, as we, speak, we speak right now, right now. Um, and and so as it, I mean, as a as a historian, first of all, that's extremely offensive, um, and it's it's extremely wrong because you know history reverberates through space and time. It is not something that is merely just a fact of the past. Everything that has happened in the past has reverberated to now, to this present of course moment. It, does. it all is important. And especially here where we can identify the material aspects of this specific history that exists right now, um, it's extremely important. And so as, the Get the, as a member of the Get the Let Out Coalition, we want to, make sure that the city takes responsibility for this. They have a moral if not a legal uh, uh responsibility to replace all of these lead laterals and they won't do it. And the reason that they won't do it is they said oh well the pipe is actually two pipes. It's the private side which is under the property owners you know, the property owned by the private individual, and then there's the public side of the pipe, which is under the street that runs from the the main and the center of the street to the sidewalk. And they say, we can't touch the private side because it's private property. We can't touch the private side of the pipe. And what's more is we can't divert any money. Get this, we can't divert any money to replace the private side that has to come from the homeowner and we can't replace the public side unless the private side is replaced and we can't replace the private side unless the homeowner pays us to do it oh my god even though the city of Milwaukee between it was about between 1872 and 1942 the city of Milwaukee was the one that was installing those pipes, not a private contractor, not individual homeowners. It was absolutely the city that was doing that. And we can see on people's tax records from that era. You can go back and look at people's taxes and they paid a tax to the city to have a pipe installed to their house, private side. So this whole private side, public side distinction, first of all, it's bullshit. It's not based in reality. Second of all, It it comes from the the federal lead and copper rule from 1991, which essentially said, "All right, cities, municipalities, if you meet a certain standard." uh, And there's plenty wrong with the lead and copper rule, and I just don't want to get into that. But let's just, you know, we'll leave it that the lead and copper rule is really messed up. But basically, what it said is that if municipalities can prove that they have water that's under a certain threshold of lead content. That they don't have to be responsible for the the private side of the the so-called private side of the pipe. So, this comes you know decades after, almost a hundred years after the mandate in Milwaukee was put into into place in the first place. And and so, the Get the Leto Coalition and, and in partnership with the IWW and the DSA um, and the PSL, you know these are all organizations that have worked on this. Um, you know, we're, we're demanding that, that the city take responsibility for this. And, and we're saying, well, if you're not gonna take responsibility from the, for this, then it's time for y'all to go. Like, you're not recognizing that, you know, this problem that your predecessors created 150 years ago is a problem or that it's your problem, then you have to go. Then it's the people's time to take over because you're not serving, what's the point of government? If you're not going to serve the needs of the people, especially something where your average citizen Cannot go down and replace that pipe down there. They can't. They can't do it for themselves. It has to be the government that does it. And just that, the 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 flagrant lying that the city's done, the doctoring of data, the doctoring of lead poisoning maps, um, and and the you know the corruption of the health department and the waterworks and the mayor, and it's it's just all kind of resulted in in this situation where. The, the Government has abdicated responsibility for providing people clean drinking water. How can folks help um, so right now it's it's very <laughs> we're we're very um, dormant right now just because of everything that's happened with with coronavirus um, but what we've kind of found out is that it's it's really going to take a revolution in order to make these kinds of changes. Because it's built into the system, it's built into the, the, the mindset of our politicians that we don't wanna pay for this and we're not going to pay for it. And we don't have a responsibility to pay for it. And we found out that there really is no way to make them pay for it. So the Get the Leno Coalition right now, we're doing a, a lot of um, kind of pushing on politicians outside of the city. So we've worked with Senator Lena Taylor, we've worked with the, the Black uh, uh, Caucus of the, the Wisconsin State Assembly, the, the Black Congressional Caucus um, of Wisconsin on this a little bit. And, and there seems to be a little bit of movement because change won't come at the city level, it's gonna come at the state level. So we're doing some kind of more political advocacy right now, um, relying on Robert Miranda really heavily to make that happen because he's got all the connections. But honestly, Bring attention to the issue like let people know about it we're, we're going to be coming out with some graphics about it really soon um and so when you see those come up share that stuff yeah. talk to your friends about it look up your house to see if you have a lead service line there's a lead service line database that well, incomplete um it's it's almost complete so look up your house and if you have a lead service line you should not be drinking that water you should get a filter you know but, but, you know, talk to your friends about this. Educate people about this. This yeah. is a real issue. If there is road construction going on by your house, you need to have a filter. Because what road construction does is it disturbs those pipes and it causes them to leach a significant amount of lead into the water. Um, and and like, So there's, there's things as an individual that you can do, but really it's going to, to take a revolution in this city, in this country to make sure that lead pipes, the, things like this get replaced. The city's not interested in providing clean drinking water for other people. They're just interested in saying that they are and proving it with doctored data.
0: While gentrifying the rest well, of Well,
1: yeah, while gentrifying, yeah. while throwing people out of their homes, while evicting people in mass. There's just so, there's an insurmountable amount of problems that are created by capitalism that really we can try and, and patch them up through things like MATU and the Get the Let Out Coalition. We can advocate for change. But more so it's to show people that look, this system is not working for us and it never will. It will never fix this problem if it's not in its own financial interest. It will never fix the housing problem if it's not profitable to put people in homes. It will not fix the lead pipes and lead poisoning unless it's profitable to remove those lead pipes. And it never will be profitable. It's just something that's a public service. It's something that needs to be done. It's going to be expensive. It's going to take a lot of hard work. But it has to be done. You're not going to make money off of it. The mayor is not going to be able to clip a red ribbon with a big pair of scissors standing in front of the last lead pipe that's removed in the city. That's It's not going to be a big publicity boon for him or whoever a the mayor photo is. It's not, a fo- it's not going to be a photo op, but it's something that has to be done. It needs to be done. And the only way that's going to happen is if the profit motive is removed. We need... Uh, a system, an economy, a political setup
0: that serves the people, not profit. That's the bottom line to all of this. Yeah, no so you're involved in the Milwaukee Autonomous Tenants Union heavily. Mm-hmm. And we, we did touch about it briefly. Mm-hmm. You know, I promised we would come back to it. But, mm-hmm. you know, um, you are a fervent tenants' rights advocate. Mm-hmm. So that's another thing that, once again, Is buried in, um, you know, uh, local media and just isn't being recognized by mainstream media. And let's talk about it. Let's talk about the eviction crisis going on. Let's talk about how we had to fight for another moratorium. Right. Talk about landlords and the Mm -hmm. institution of landlords. Tell us. Absolutely. Let's talk about what does the Milwaukee Autonomous Tenants Union fight for? So, uh,
1: I mean, it, it, to, to put it most basically, the Milwaukee Autonomous Tenants Union believe that housing is a human right, that housing needs to be decommodified, that we don't need landlords, we don't need a landlord class, that housing should be guaranteed as a right to everybody. Affordable housing, quality housing, where you don't have to worry about your safety, you don't have to worry about being evicted. Everybody deserves to live in a home. And there are plenty of homes. There are almost five times as many vacant homes in the United States as there are homeless and, and unhoused populations. We could house everybody, but it's not profitable to do so. So the Milwaukee Autonomous, Autonomous Tendance Union advocates for full housing. We advocate for major national level um, repair of vacant homes so that people can live in them. Um, and the, 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 de- the full decommodification of housing. And so the media has covered this eviction crisis, but it's more so the way that they've covered it, local media and national media that has been problematic because first of all, they always, they always get both sides of the story. So they always interview some landlord yeah. or some landlord association or some landlord rights lawyers or some despicable character like that. The other thing that they do is they always bring it back to the Democratic versus Republican political dictomy. They always bring it back to, you know, what Trump is doing or what Biden would do, what the Democrats are doing, you know, what they say should be done. It always comes back to that dictum. So not only do we have this kind of, you know, poisonous landlord figure that always, you know, claims innocence in these stories, but then we also have a full reliance on prevailing political rhetoric that that uh, you know exists to try and funnel energy back into this Democratic Republican, Democratic versus Republican dichotomy. And so the way that it's it's not so much that the media hasn't covered it, but it's been the way that the media has covered it that has presented some problems. And I will give a shout out to to Urban Milwaukee. They've covered this situation very well. Spectrum yeah. News One has covered it very well. So not everybody is doing a bad job with this, but. It, it really is something that needs to be talked about in a different parlance. There needs to be a reframing of the issue of evictions. Um, and I think that needs to start with recognizing that landlords are not necessary, that landlords need to be eliminated. We don't need landlords. And I know I said this before, but landlords are parasites. Landlords are entities that derive their power um, from the enclosures of land, from the expropriation of the commons, um, and and from the commodification of people's labor, that's where landlords come into the picture
0: historically. They keep we massive. Need to get rid of them. Yeah, massive profit margins um, mm-hmm. in relation to the actual cost of upkeep. Right. Definitely. Yeah. It's not a job. Being a landlord's not a job.
1: You're you, you own. You know, maybe you, okay, so you go in, you fix something. That's not you being a landlord. That's being you, you being a plumber or an electrician or a repair person. Owning property to rent it out to others is not a job. It's not, it is gatekeeping. It is, it is um, accumulation. It's pure accumulation by, you know, extracting people's labor um, or the, the, the wealth that they created and was paid to them as a wage, extracting that from them. And in Milwaukee, you'll see people paying fifty percent of their income per month on rent, sixty percent, seventy percent. Milwaukee, um, according to the the, the community uh, Milwaukee community advocates, is one of the one of the biggest rent gougers in the state of or in the whole country. Not only in the state of Wisconsin, but in the whole country. Landlords in Milwaukee are so empowered. By the lack of limits on, you know how they act, um, the lack of rent control in this state, the lack of any kinds of statutes that limit how they exploit their tenants, they're so empowered that they they rent gouge more than almost any other city um, of landlords in the United States. And one of the biggest ones is Joe Barada, Barada Properties. Um, You'll see his houses or his his properties all over the North Side. They've always got the big boulders in front of them. Um, he's the worst. He's the worst landlord. There's a couple other really bad ones. Um, I want to give a shout out to George Sessler, who's a terrible landlord, a terrible exploiting landlord. Uh, to Will Sherrard of Morocco Properties, terrible landlord. There's a ton of them. But Baran is big one.
0: Yeah, there's a whole wall of shame.
1: <laughs> there is a whole wall. There is a whole ass landlord wall of shame where we have like the top 10 evictors and the top two evicting lawyers in the city of Milwaukee on it. And they're all terrible, um, but Barada, and so Barada has has been evicting dozens of people, over a hundred. Actually, it's, it's I think it's around three hundred and twenty people uh, since the evict the state eviction moratorium in Wisconsin expired, and so Barada is a serial evictor. Even before. Um, the, you know, the pandemic and the economic crisis started. He was he was the biggest evictor in the city, yeah. hands down.
0: And he doesn't so, even live in Milwaukee. Right? No, he lives in he, – well, he has
1: a, he has a, his second home is a mansion in Mequon. But he spends most of his time in Florida, where all the good landlords go. Um, so he has multiple homes. He owns about 3,000 units, um, rental, rental units in Milwaukee. He owns several thousand more. He's got some in Baltimore, Detroit, St. Louis – um, these, you know, really poor cities with large large African American populations. And that's who he exploits, is, is people living on the North side, people that are, are low income, people that have evictions on their records already. Um, you know, he'll rent to them. And then when they don't pay, he'll evict them, and then he'll sue them for damages, is essentially what he'll do. And he creates an artificial housing, housing shortage by doing this. Because when you put evictions on people's records like that, it's extremely hard for them to find new housing unless it's Section 8 through a voucher or unless you pay double security, a double security deposit. So by evicting so many people, what Barada does is he creates an artificial housing shortage and he, he makes sure that people who have multiple evictions on, his, on their record can only come back and rent from him or can only go and rent from other thugs like George Sessler. Um, and he, he does this for profit. He throws people out and lets them back in and throws them out and ex, you know, takes their money and throws them out for profit. And that's his, whole, that's his whole shtick. That's all he does. He doesn't do anything else except for own property. And so MATU went out to picket his office um, on September 1st, because he's terrible. <laughs> and because we, we have represented uh, several tenants that have been evicted by Barada um, in court and, and help them with demand delivery letters and other types of direct action that MATU, that's our bread and butter is direct action. We want to go and we want to say to the landlord's face, look, you're an asshole for evicting these people during this crisis. We demand that you rescind the eviction right now. And landlords usually don't take, they don't like that. They don't like being called out because they have this very warped vision of who they are. Landlords actually see themselves as the good guys. They yeah, see they do that, that.
0: It's that mental gymnastics that they're yeah, doing these people favors.
1: Exactly. Yeah, they think that they're the most understanding and, um, accommodating and generous people out there even when they're serial evictors they actually think this about themselves and it's this collective landlord mentality it's mental gymnastics like you said it it is built up by all these landlords talking to each other on landlord you know chat boards on reddit on facebook pages and they develop this collective mentality of yeah we're the good guys here we're so generous we're so understanding we're so accommodating as they're throwing hundreds of people out of their homes. Sounds like politicians. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, make me a list of the state collaborators that are like that. There's you know, all <laughs> sorts of classes of people. So we went out and we picketed uh, Joe Barata's office and he had armed thugs out there to confront really? us. Really? Yeah. Um, and there was caution tape all, like, all over the place that he had those, those guys put up. And yeah, he had armed people out there uh, to try and intimidate us, they tried to tell us to leave, even though we were on public property where you know we can be to picket. Um, they called the police on us, and the police threatened us. Um, and so it just goes to show that you know landlords are actually they're not good people. And any sign of dissent, any sign of protest against their practices, they are going to react. They're they're so they're so fragile they're gonna react disproportionately. Hiring armed goons, calling the police, um, threatening us um, and, and stuff like that to try and get this problem to go away. And we didn't go away, we weren't intimidated. We, we said, no, we're gonna stay and we're gonna denounce you right here in front of your office on 76th Street. We're gonna go back again on October 1st. So stay tuned for that to pick it again. Um, but what we actually accomplished through not only our actions, our anti-barada actions, but through the, the work of Milwaukee community advocates, Milwaukee Legal Aid Society, Mediate Milwaukee, is is Barada put in place a um, self-imposed eviction moratorium um, for the moment. I don't know how long it's going to last or if he's going to charge you know back fees and back rent for all these people, but he has stopped filing evictions, and so this is you know this shows that direct action, direct action, confronting these landlords publicly at their offices, in the streets, wherever they are, where they live, that works. And we're going to continue to do that. And we're going to continue to represent tenants' interests. We're going to continue to build our membership. And we're going to continue to confront landlords where they are, because what what like they're throwing people on the streets? What what else can we do? The courts don't work in our favor. The politicians don't work in our favor. We have to take action. We have to. And so I encourage people: if you're a tenant, um, or if you're just interested in in doing tenants' rights activism, there is more than enough stuff that we have to do. I run around like a crazy person every day working on MATU stuff. So we need people. And this is, there's much more material things that we need for MATU. So if you're interested, if you're watching this and you're interested in doing tenants rights advocacy and activism, please contact us, Milwaukee Autonomous Tenants Union on Facebook or matunion.org, fill out your, you know, our contact sheet. Um, But yeah, we, uh, uh, we have a lot of cases that we're handling right now. Um, And there's a lot that needs to be done. So that's kind of the deal with MATU. We've been, I've been working on it since about April. Um, It's been around since March. So we're relatively new. We're still trying to get a lot of our internal structure figured out, but there's just so much important work to do that that's kind of secondary at this point.
0: Thank you so much, Bobby, for sharing all that. And also thank you for being on the show, my friend.
1: Yo, I really appreciate it, comrade. This was a blast. I know we could talk for several hours more, I'm sure. Maybe there'll be a part 2 at some point. Yeah. But <laughs> but this was great. I really appreciate the time. I love your I love your show. I love your show. It's great and I, I can't wait to see it. Though I do I hate I hate to I hate to watch myself.
0: Yeah, um, I mean it, <laughs> I I've I've done this for you know, I'm almost play. I'm over 400 episodes in and I still hate myself. So, (laughs) I mean, it's you know, it it is a bit of an acquired taste. uh, You know, um, adapting yourself to a broadcast format. But Mm -hmm. uh, this is this is Bobby. I can't even like emphasize with words how important all of these topics are to be Mm -hmm. discussing uh, in a way that can be conveyed to Folks that aren't conscious of it, that, yeah, like, that we need to help get involved. <laughs> and uh, that goes for myself, too. You provided, you single handedly provided a lot of information I didn't know, specifically mm-hmm. about Get the Let Out. And
2: mm-hmm.
0: so um, I'll be posting a lot of links uh, yes um, with PSL, Get the Let Out, MATU. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, just Any basic things that can help folks learn more about? Yeah, you talk your shit, but you because you've read your shit. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I have read my shit, and I've got there's more shit to read. Um, Yeah. I'm a I'm a book junkie. We can maybe talk about that more next time. I'm I'm a I'm a total total uh, a book and and uh, uh, academic article junkie. So, you know, that's something that we can talk about another time. But yeah, I mean, just like just like what you just said is that there's all these different issues and they all intersect, right? The, the Black Lives Matter intersects with segregation, intersects with housing insecurity, intersects with lead poisoning in the water, intersects with um, you know poor health outcomes in African-American communities, intersects with climate change, intersects with imperialism. And that's what we mean when we're talking about dialectical materialism, we're talking about analyzing the, the, the totality of human knowledge, the totality of the human experience in the context of class struggle. That's why that's so important because you see all these single issues and all these things that are important. It can be overwhelming if you don't have a framework in order to analyze all of those things at once, analyze them as a totality, as part of this whole history of humanity struggling against itself we are struggling against ourselves because we're divided into classes, the capitalist class and the working class. And the working class has to be victorious because as I said before, the capitalist class will lead to the destruction of humanity, the death of every single person. And so I just want to emphasize that if you're looking for a framework to look at all these things through, if you're so overwhelmed by all of the the, 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 the inhumanity and the, the destruction and the, the grief and the sadness and, and the, the heartbreak um, that you see. And if it's just so overwhelming, the framework to be able to look at it in its totality and analyze it is this dialectic of materialism. And so I just wanna emphasize again, the importance of that to, to what we are talking about in PSL and what we're advocating for and why we advocate for revolution. And so, I yeah, just thank you for having me on. Thank you for letting me come talk my shit. I love to come and talk a bunch of shit. That's, that's what I do. Oh, um, so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um,
0: yeah, thank you so much, Ben. Really appreciate it, comrade. You're very welcome, my friend. Yeah, hope, my pleasure, comrade. So as we're closing out, it's a good segue, actually, um, into my final two questions. Bobby, what keeps you up at night? Oh,
1: Lord, the thing that keeps me up at night um, is the overconsumption of caffeine during the day and the, the fear that uh, we're gonna be too late and that everybody is gonna die, um, a fiery, uh, terrible death um, in a climate apocalypse, um, and that we're going that the revolution isn't gonna happen, that we're gonna be too late and that every, everybody on the planet's gonna die in our whole history um, as humans will die with it, will become a dead planet. Uh, bereft of life that's my that's what keeps me up at at night along with the caffeine that's a
0: fantastic answer um what puts you to sleep
1: (laughs) what puts me to sleep is my medication um and um
2: the
1: the the kind of the revolutionary optimism that you have to carry with you that i carry with me that i know that all my comrades carry with them that you know on on the flip side of we're gonna to be too late, the revolution's not gonna happen, it's not gonna you know, work and humanity is going to die. The flip side of that, that puts me to sleep, that gives me confidence, is all of the revolutionary interactions that I have with all my comrades here in PSL, in other organizations, with my comrades across the country and across the world, that makes me believe that we can do this, that we, that we are primed for revolutionary overthrow of capitalism, that this is possible and it's possible in our lifetimes that it has to be possible. Um, and that, that the work that we're doing, the work that, that I'm doing and that everybody around me is doing in these settings every day is contributing to that. And I just, you know, I don't wanna, I don't wanna be a leader. I don't want to be a, um, you know, an icon. I don't wanna have my image pasted all over the place. I don't want a cult of personality. I just wanna help, right? I just wanna like help make this come come true because I would much rather, believe me, I would much rather not be uh, into politics at all at this point. If, if everything were like, you know, very nice and we lived in a very nice socialist society with sustainable energy and housing for everybody, you know, I wouldn't wanna be involved in politics. Yeah, I wouldn't, I I'd, I'd wanna do other things, but it's so important that you take this seriously and that you you, engage with the negativity and the optimism. Um, yeah. and that you have the optimism that we'll eventually win, that we will eventually create a sustainable society that is, is free of contradiction, that is free of oppression and hatred and violence. Like that's that's what puts me to sleep is the idea that all of that is possible.
0: <sighs> I'm sweating <laughs> I'm sweating now. Yeah take a shit. breath, take a breath. Thank you for watching Mr. Nice Guy, everybody. We'll see you next time.